All right, we're in the book of Mark, and we'll be in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to finish off this chapter today, and we're actually going to move into the very first two verses of Mark chapter 13. So Mark chapter 12, we'll start in verse 35. Now, I don't know how many of you have come with us to Mexico, but here in about a little over a month, we're going to head on down to Mexico in November. We do this right at Thanksgiving that gives us four full days of ministry, and it's a lot of fun. I always encourage people, come on, come with us. Because you know, a lot of people are afraid of Mexico, but I've never experienced anything but joy when we've gone there. It's such a blessing to serve. But what happens is, is, is on Sunday, we get up early, and we, we call it the Tecate route. We go to Tecate border, because if you try to come through Tijuana, it's absolutely terrible. You'll be in line for like seven or eight hours. So we drive all the way to Tecate, which is about a three-hour drive, but it only takes about two hours to get across the border. And if any of you have done that for Mexico, you know when you're kind of sitting there, behind all the cars, they have these street vendors. You know, they're walking up and they're usually selling like food and little gadgets. But every once in a while, they have these, these items that look real. Like I remember this one year, this guy showed up and he had all these sunglasses, just like Oakley sunglasses, you know. They, they look real, but they're not real. They're fakes. And in today's message, we're going to see Jesus is going to point out that he is absolutely real. That he is the absolute true and living God-man. But he's going to point out also that the religious leaders that have been leading the nation, they are absolute fakes, and the whole system is a fake. It is corrupt. And he's going to help us see, I think, here in this text here, not only how can we recognize the true and living Christ, but how can we recognize fake religious people or fake religious systems. That's what we're going to find out through the scriptures today in Mark chapter 12, the real versus the fake. So let's look at the text. We're going to just take it in sections. This will be Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37 of B, where we'll begin. So let's read that. It says, And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Now the first thing we'll see in this little section right here is that you identify Jesus as the real Christ through his ancestry and through the scripture. His ancestry and through the scripture. Jesus fulfills all the necessary prophetic requirements for the coming Messiah through his family lineage, as confirmed in Scripture. But guys, there's a lot of false religions and cults. They have a different Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's different. So Jesus is going to help us understand what do we look for. So Jesus here, he begins to say as, as he taught in the temple. You understand he's a rabbi. And a teacher in those days, oftentimes they would teach by walking and he has a crowd around him. He's got a number of religious leaders. I don't know if you remember, but Jesus had just been confronted by three different religious groups here. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They were part of the Sanhedrin. And the last time we met in this section, two weeks ago, he was confronted by one of the, each of these groups. And they were trying to hammer him with these questions to try to trip him up. Because they hoped he would say something that would discredit him in front of the people, or maybe even better for them... If he said something that would get him in trouble with Rome, they want him dead. They absolutely hate him. 
They need him out of the way. And so right after this is this scene. And so now Jesus begins to walk, and I think he's, he's beginning to talk to them and to teach. And you need to ask yourself this question, who is Jesus to you, really? Who do you believe him to be? Because he's going to share with us today what we need to understand. Is he, in fact, the Messiah? Do you believe that? And is he more than that? Is he truly the Son of God? Is he the God-man? Is he the God-man? Now, you, you might be saying, no, Pastor Rob, no, duh. I mean, I'm in a church. But I've got to tell you guys, regularly I meet people that they don't understand that. And they don't have the concept of who Jesus is going to share with us today who he truly is. You see, the Jews back in Jesus' day and all the way to today, they did not believe that the coming Messiah would be a God-man. They believed that he'd be a powerful man, that he'd be just a human that God would, if you will, use to help overthrow Rome, that, that God somehow would use this powerful man to conquer Israel's enemy and he'd fulfill the promises to, to Abraham and to David in the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. But you've got to understand that they just absolutely hated Jesus. And why would they hate Jesus? Well, Jesus called them on their bluff. He called them out. He hit them about their, their hypocrisy. He, he nailed them on their theology. He went in and he stopped their evil practices in the temple. But you know what they hated him most for? He claimed to be God. Jesus' whole ministry was built around that truth. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the whole thrust of his ministry is that he is so much more than just a man. He is the God-man, God incarnate, God here on earth. But the, the, the leaders here, they refuse to believe it. They will not believe because their hearts are hard. And guys, you have to work really hard not to believe it because everything that Jesus did proved it. His very birth proved it. The works and the miracles proved it. What he said proved it. But they would not believe. Now, I think this event right here is the last opportunity, if you will, this last moment for the gospel to sink in. And there might be someone there that might respond in faith. I think Jesus right here, if you will, because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, I think right here he's giving them an opportunity to respond. This is it. His heart is out. He's willing to give it one more try that maybe by the grace of God, if, if they might listen and actually hear what he's saying, they would respond and can receive Christ. This is the last conversation for these leaders of Israel because they do not want to believe that, the, that this man is truly who he claims to be. Now, this idea of the God-man, there's a the theological term for it. It's called the hypostatic union, and this is what was taught at the latest youth camp that we recently had. and So just so you understand what the hypostatic union means, it's a pretty simple term. It really means personal. The hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus with two natures. Jesus has two complete natures, one fully human, the other fully divine. I call him the only, the only 200% person. He's 100% God and 100% man. He's not two people, one person, two natures. Do you get that? One person, two natures. He's fully human, but he's also fully divine. And to get this point across, Jesus is going to share with them that this Messiah, 
that was spoken of in, in centuries past through the prophets, that he will be both God and man, but they don't understand this. And so he begins to ask them questions, and actually in Matthew 22 is where the questioning begins. I want to share that with you. Matthew 22, verse 42, Jesus says, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And so he, he says this question to them at the beginning, like, hey, who, who do you think the Messiah is? Whose son is he? And they say, oh, he's the son of David. He doesn't really point at himself. He just when he gets out there, what are you guys thinking? Well, this Messiah is going to be the son of David. Then he asks the question right here in verse 35. Look at it. He says, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And I think what Jesus is trying to say here is why is it that the scribes say he's only the son of David? That's the idea behind it. You guys believe this because your teachers are teaching you that this is, he's only the son of David. But why did they hold to that? What's the reasoning behind that? What does it mean? Why did, why did they say that he's the son of David and nothing more? And what this does is it opens up fundamentally the wrong idea about who the Messiah is. They missed it. But we know that, that some of them got it, his own disciples did. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 29, Jesus is talking about who people say that I am. Let me share it with you. Mark chapter 8, 27 through 29, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others say one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And in Matthew, it gives you what he fully said. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They didn't have the full picture. They missed it. They just knew him as Christ, the man. What they missed is he's Christ, the God-man. That's huge. And you have to believe that to be saved, by the way. You must understand who he is. Now, they understood that he, he was from David's line because that's in in the Old Testament. Nathan speaking to David in 2 Samuel 7 says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, one who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And David himself wrote this in Psalm 89, 3 and 4. He says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. So they understood that he'd be a son of David. Jesus, of course, is clearly in the New Testament. We know that he's from the line of David. If you've you've read the book of Matthew, the very beginning of Matthew is all about the lineage of Jesus through his stepfather, Joseph. Now, you understand that he was... His father is truly God, the Holy Spirit. So Joseph is his stepfather here and his earthly father, if you will. And Matthew 1.1 says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then it traces it all the way down to Joseph. And if you were to look at Luke 3, it traces the lineage of Mary. And she's also from the line of David. So Jesus, both his father and his mother, are from the line of, of David. And so if the leaders could have proven that he wasn't from the line of David, they would have because they had all the records. So that, that's out. They know, okay, he is from the line of David. But we have to understand what makes Jesus unique because David had a lot of descendants, right? And that's why he shares right here this section in verse 36. It's from Psalm 110. 
And Jesus is very purposeful here. So if you look at verse 36, Jesus says, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So David wrote Psalm 110, and Jesus now is sharing what David wrote. And now Jesus right here, he's speaking in Greek. He uses the Greek word for Lord. He uses the word kurios. And that is the Hebrew equivalent to Adonai that David said in Hebrew. And the Hebrew word Adonai is the main word used in Hebrew for God when it's speaking about God. And so Jesus is very purposeful here. He's using this text to show them, wow, he's speaking about God. They said, wait a minute, maybe David was mistaken. Look what it says. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, guys, it's inspired. David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is saying that the coming Messiah is going to be more than just a man. He's going to be God and man. And Jesus is just pointing right out to him and saying, see, right here. It says right there that he's both God and man. And he says, and he's going to make his enemies his footstools. Now, when you tell a Jew that someone is going to sit at the right hand of God, they understand right there that taking the place at the right hand of God gives them equal authority to God, equal in rank, equal authority, that this shows his deity also. And it's going to make his enemies under his feet. And Jesus is saying, this person, this Messiah, who's going to be both the God-man, he's going to be given full authority to actually make all the enemies, if you will, make his enemies a footstool. The deity of Christ is what's at issue here. And Jesus lays it right before them because they've missed it, they've missed it, they've missed it, and this is their last chance. And he's telling them in the scripture so that they see it clearly, but they will not listen. Why is it necessary for the Christ to be both God and man? I mean, Why? Well, first of all, since it was a man who sinned, a man must atone for it, but he has to be sinless. And only a perfect man can pay for those sins. Only somebody who is infinite God could bear the full penalty of all man's sins. And the whole message of Scripture is designed to show that no creature or man can save man, only God himself. And only somebody who is truly man and fully God could be the one mediator that we need to bring us to God and to explain us who God is. Guys, in the New Testament overflows with evidence that Jesus is God. Now, we know that he's human, right? I mean, Jesus ate food. He got tired. He slept. He had emotions. Remember, he wept. He bled and died, didn't he? But then again, he rose again. But so he's fully human, But the New Testament, it just goes on and on that he is God. And I want to share that with you. Because this is what we stand on. He is more than just a man. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And Jesus shares all the attributes of God with his Father. He's omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. The New Testament claim is that Jesus is the creator. And Al just shared us with that in John 1, right? John 1.3 All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And while he was in their presence, in Matthew 8, 26, he calmed the storm as the creator. In Matthew 14, 19, he multiplied the fish and the loaves and fed over 5,000. In John 2, he turned water into wine and on and on and on as the creator God. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. 
And not only that, he's omniscience. That means he knows everything. He knew the thoughts of the scribes in Mark 2.8. Jesus saw Nathanael under the fig tree in his mind, and he knew him even before he ever met him. He knows everything. He's also omnipresent, which means he's everywhere at once. And his divine nature, Jesus said this in Matthew 18.20, where two or three are gathered in my name. I'm in their midst. Also in Matthew 28.20, he says, And I will always be with you until the end of the age. He's everywhere at once. He's sovereign. He possesses all authority. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me under earth and in heaven. And also whenever he spoke, he says, but I say unto you under his own authority. Also, he's immortal. He will not die. Jesus said, destroy this temple or this body and in three days I will raise it up. And what happened in the resurrection? In three days, he was put in the grave. Three days later, he rose He's eternal. He has always been. John 17, 5, Jesus said, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was, and on and on we can go. All the attributes of God are within Jesus. He's holy. He's true. He's wise. He's loving. He's glory. He forgives sins. He possesses all the attributes And he put them all on display while he was on earth, but they would not believe because their hearts were hard. They had a religious system. They had a form of godliness. But they did not recognize the coming of this man who was more than a man. He is the God-man. And I don't know if you know this, but Jesus also took on the titles of God. He's known as the rock, the cornerstone, the savior, the redeemer, the holy one, Lord of hosts, king, first and last, light, lawgiver, on and on I could go. And if God became a man, we would expect him to be sinless. And Jesus was. Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in all things as we are yet without, without sin. And so Jesus says right here in verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And you know what he's saying there? He's saying Jesus means this. He's both. He's David's son and he's God's son. And in me, I fulfill both those requirements as David's son and God's son. And then at the end of verse 37, it says, and the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. That to me is just sad. Guys, they enjoyed listening to him, but they did not believe. They enjoyed listening to him, but they ended up in hell. And you can sit in church and can hear the gospel preached. You can understand what it says and enjoy it and still end up in hell because you never received the truth. You don't take it in and accept it as truth. And there are many that do that. They deny the truth. They denied its power. It was a form of godliness. This past Monday, I was studying. Whenever I hear a knock on the door, I think, okay, it's Mormon, Jehovah's Witness. And it happens a lot in my neighborhood. And I usually just say, you know what, I'm not going to deal with it. Because I always look at that as a distraction to the Word of God and distraction from studying. Matter of fact, I was studying for today's message. But I'm in this text. And I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to take this one on. And so I went out, and sure enough, it was Jehovah's Witness. Typically, they, they come in pairs or threes, but it was just a, one man by himself. And, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm from a local church. And 
he says, I've, I've got some literature I'd love to give, give to you. And, and I said, okay, hold on. I said, I know, I know what that literature is. And he says, well, you know that we all share the same Bible, right? And I said, no, you understand that you guys have changed the very words to, so that it fits your theology, right? And he looked kind of stunned that I actually knew that. And then I said, let me just ask you one question. And I said, is Jesus co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit? And then he looked at me and he says, well, that's the difference, isn't it? And he turned around and he walked away. Guys, that is the difference. That is the difference with every other religion and every other cult. Jesus is co-equal. He's fully God and fully man. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, well, well Pastor Rob, you're saying it's clear. If it's so clear, how, how come more people don't believe? You have to understand it's a spiritual work. It's not just the knowledge. The truth is out there. The evidence is clear. But it is, a, it is a spiritual work. And this is why Jesus said this in John 6, He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends. That the Holy Spirit will break through their hard hearts and will draw them to faith. Right here, you identify Jesus as the real Christ through ancestry in the scripture. There's a second thing. You identify false teachers by their pride and their thievery. By their pride and their thievery. Now, Jesus says you will know them by their fruits, and false teachers will be revealed by their prideful, greedy ways. Look at verses 38 through 40. It says, In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So again, Jesus right here, he's given a caution, if you were. He says, hey, beware. Beware of the scribes. And this is a condemnation really on all these false teachers. It's a it's, they have a corrupt view of Scripture. They have a corrupt view of the Christ. They have a corrupt view of the gospel. And if you remember in the context, Jesus had just finished talking to a scribe. You guys remember that? He had come to him and he says, what's the greatest commandment? And then Jesus said, hey, love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself, that one. But that conversation just happened. And now right here, he said, hey, beware of these guys. So in front of everybody, that cr- the scribe is probably right there. And I don't know if you remember, but Jesus says, hey, you're not far. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Do you remember that? This man was not far, but yet he was still distant because he would not believe. Now, one thing about the scribes is they belong to the, the Pharisees. They're part of the Pharisee sect. And they're mostly concerned about the law. If you will, they're the lawyers, These are the guys that studied the law, and they were experts in the religious, civil, and social matters. And their responsibility was not only the interpretation of the law, but also the application of the law. How do we use this? What do we do with the law? And so they handled the legal matters for all the people, and they were trusted as the protectors and the shepherds of God. But guys, these guys here, there was no real virtue in them. They were out for themselves. They used others. And and they particularly liked to prey on the weak and the feeble. They were evil men. So what characterizes their false virtue? Guys, it was external. There was no internal faith. There was no internal true belief in God. It was external. So they look 
really godly. And they do all this stuff to say, hey, I'm really spiritual. But inside, remember Jesus said, they're dead man's bones. These guys have no love for God. And they have no love for God's people. So what Jesus says right here in verse 38, he says, hey, beware of the scribes. He says they like to walk around in long robes. Well, you need to understand that they would wear these really ornate robes and they were beautiful. And they would go all the way down to the ground, down basically almost touching the ground around their ankles. And we know from Numbers chapter 15 that they would have, it says that those who are, are religious, those who love God are supposed to have tassels if you will, on their robes. But what the religious people did is they say, well, I want to be kind of put on a show and I'm going to look more godly. And so they started to enlarge their tassels. So the ones that wanted to look like they were really religious is that they had these really big tassels on their robes. And the bigger the tassel, quote unquote, the more godly you were. And so it drew attention to them and their dress. It wasn't their heart or their love for God. They had to do an external display They had no true holiness of heart. They wanted really no part of really being what a holy man was. And guys, you can often recognize false teachers or prideful, arrogant men by the way they dress, you know, the fancy suits and the gold jewelry and all this kind of stuff, kind of like the TV preacher stuff we see a lot on them. We all just kind of go, oh man, he's a bad name to Christ. But, you know, it's not just our religion. This is in other religions, too. When we were in Thailand, there were guys walking around with shaved heads and orange robes. But they don't know the living Christ. It was a way to look, if you will, more spiritual. And in the Middle East, they wear turbans and they have real long beards. And this kind of outward expression, quote-unquote, of spirituality is common. And it says here they like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Guys, they, they expect to be addressed with dignity, right? Rabbi or... Or, you know, um, oh, knowledgeable one, oh, great one, oh, great teacher. They loved that kind of stuff. And we see that today, right? Oh, Dr. So-and-so or Reverend So-and-so. And you know what I'm talking about. It's that kind of thing. It's, they want it. They feed off of it. Also, they love the chief seats in the synagogues, the places of honor and banquets. And if you had to see a synagogue, they kind of had a raised platform similar to this, but they'd have these seats in there, and these guys wanted those seats because they're up in front, and they get recognized. Or in banquets, they want to be next to the, to the main person. Guys, they want the place of honor. They want the first seat. They want to have people to recognize them. And can I just tell you, this whole idea about show, it, it, it just reveals their lack of spirituality and when you have a, no real spirituality, you have to expand spiritualism. You have to have incense and robes and ornate surroundings and all this stuff because the true and living God is not present. So you have to fool the people and make it look really spiritual and all this kind of stuff, but it's just not real, and that's what these guys did. And you know their true hearts because it says right here, what do they do? They devour widows' houses. They devour widows' houses. See, not only are they prideful, They're thieves. These guys are sneaks and they're thieves and they worm their way in to weak people's houses and they steal it. And here's the picture, if you think about it. They're lawyers. And if you have a widow, she's lost her husband and she needs to take care of her home. And and so, kind of like what we would do if you have a will or a living trust, you have somebody take care of the legal matters and they they call in one of these scribes, right? Well, this guy would come in kind of looking all godly and spiritual and all that, like he really cares, and then he'd work out the paperwork, so he's the one who gets up, he gets the house. To the point where many of them became destitute and were on the streets, or they would die, 
And then the house would be in their name because they became the executor and their family got nothing. They devour widows' houses. But this is nothing new for this religion. Understand that this is what this religion taught. They were used to taking people's money. The fact is that that's the way it was structured. They, they would have people come into the main sanctuary and they would have to purchase blessings from God. Matter of fact, they demanded all the people do that, not only them, but the widows also. And, and if you went to the sanctuary in the court of the women, there would be 13 receptacles for people to bring their money. And that's what the people did. And this is why Jesus said in Mark 11, you've made my father's house a robber's den. Because literally the whole system was corrupt and they were ripping off the people. And it says here, for appearance sake, they offer long prayers these are prayers of repetition. They're not, they're not even talking to God. It's for appearance sake. They want to look good. They want to look spiritual, but they have no heart for God. And now here is the condemnation. He says they're going to receive greater condemnation. People like this who will feed on other people, people like this who put on a show to get rich, who say, I love God, they feign religion, but they're using it for their own means. They're going to receive greater condemnation. It's a scary thing to be. This is why it's so important as a person who serves the Lord to always be checking your heart. Because the Lord is especially, if you will, hard on those who basically are just religious. Because you understand it's not religion. It's Christ. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Him alone. And that alone should humble us. But this is why James says this, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will will be judged more strictly. And that's a serious word that I take very seriously. Well, this is what Jesus said. A parallel set of verses for this is Matthew 23. And he just hammers these guys. But let me share just a few of the verses. Matthew 23, verses 13 through 15, speaking about these religious leaders, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from the people, for you do not enter in in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. And Jesus goes on and on. Scary, scary words. And greater condemnation, guys, will fall upon those who claim Christ, yet they use it as a means to build up their own kingdom. They use it as a means to become wealthy and so on. And it's a scary thing, and we see it all the time, don't we? we see, you know, I mean, I literally went online doing this message, and all I had to do was, was punch in church scandal, and I got hundreds. But I just want to share one with you. Recently, this just past June, a Texas megachurch pastor recently caused an uproar by asking his congregation to finance a $50,000 upgrade on his luxury helicopter. And he called it a $52 favor seed. So the Texas pastor reportedly sent out this letter to his what he called friends in Jesus list telling them that if they sow $52 uh, transportation seed toward the upgrade that they would receive a breakthrough favor from God within 52 days or 52 weeks. 
And he says, does your car need repair or total replacement? Do you have a dream vehicle or luxury automobile that you long to purchase? And he explained by pointing out to various biblical scriptures. We have an urgent transportation need that the Lord can be an opportunity for you to see his favor and his wisdom released to help you. Scripture teaches that that you give to a kingdom need. God will raise up someone to use their power, their ability, and their influence to help you. Guys, this guy's a false teacher. He's a scam artist. And he will receive greater condemnation. You guys are thinking right now, okay, Pastor Rob, over the past few weeks, you've been talking a lot about false faith and true faith. Why are you doing this so much? Well, guys, all I can tell you is that this is where the Scripture is. And I'm just teaching the text. And so I have to believe that through the work of the Holy Spirit, He wants our church to have discernment. He wants us to be aware of what a good church looks like, what healthy Christians should be versus a false false faith and false teachers. He's asking us to be discerning and to listen. You identify false teachers by their pride and their thievery. You identify Jesus as the real Christ through ancestry and Scripture. And here's the last one. You identify false religion by its victims and its destruction. By its victims and its destruction. You see, false religions prey on the innocent and they leave a wake of destruction in their path. But trust me, God will judge. God will judge. Now we're going to finish out these verses right here in Mark 12 and then we're going to read the first two verses in Mark chapter 13. It says he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which amount to a cent. And calling his disciples to himself, he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. And verses 1 and 2 of Mark 13 says, And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Okay, here's the picture. Jesus finishes speaking, if you will, to the people. And he walks over and he sits opposite the treasury. And he begins observing how so many people are putting money into the treasury. Now, the missioner reports that there were 13, remember these 13 receptacles? They they were called shofar chests. And basically what they were, a shofar was like a horn. And so you would have a chest and, and you'd have these like horns coming out. So they're real wide on the outside. You can put lots and lots in, but they get real narrow so you can't take it back. Once it's theirs, it's theirs for good. And that's the idea. And so Jesus makes an observation. He makes a contrast observation. If you look at verse 41, as there were many rich people and they were putting in large sums out of their surplus. In verse 42, you have a a poor woman and she puts her last two little little coins and and, and basically it's worth a penny. It's a cent. It's worth practically nothing. But this was all she had. And I gotta tell you guys, when when you're looking at Scripture and you're finding, if you will, that, that section that seems to be a flow, this seemed really out of place to me, didn't it? I mean, Jesus has just told, I am the God-man, I am the true one sent, I am the Messiah, so this is the real Christ. 
And then he hammers away, these are false teachers. And all of a sudden you have this teaching. It almost seems like a teaching on giving. It just seems kind of left-footed or why is this here? But there's a key and I'm going to walk us through this. Many scholars and commentators that I read, when they look at this event with the widow, they try to maybe show that maybe the contrast of her being humble compared to maybe the scribes that are prideful. And I'm saying, yeah, I, I can kind of buy that. Um, some of them viewed this, for, this poor woman, she's like a model of faithful giving and, and how, you know, the, since these scribes and maybe the people, they were rich, maybe they weren't faithful in giving and maybe that would be kind of another way you could view that. Some of the commentators use this as an example of Christian giving that, you know, it seems like Jesus is maybe teaching his disciples that we're to give to God sacrificially like this woman does, you know, absolutely everything we have. But let's take a look at that real quick, verses 43 and 44. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor woman put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, she put in all she, she owned, uh, all she had to live on. Now, most commentators that I read teach for Jesus the value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost of the giver. Um, for many will give... Um, what they could spare, but this poor woman, she, she could spare nothing, but she gave all she had. But I got to tell you guys, when, when I'm looking at this, I don't think that's spiritual. I don't think it fits the context. I think that most of the ones I read missed it. When you look at the text and where Jesus is going here, I do not believe Jesus is teaching on giving or faith or trusting in God with all you had. I think what this event highlights is what a false religion will do to its people how it will destroy them and use them. Because I don't see, it doesn't say anything about this woman's motive here. All the section tells us is that she put in two coins, all she had to live on, and she gave more than all those who had plenty. And you'll have many sermons that'll teach you you need to give all you have and, and you need to give sacrificially, I guess, until it hurts. And it's supposed to demonstrate, if you will, that we're supposed to trust God with all we have. And that's a truth, but I don't think that's what this could be really used for, at least not in the context. And Jesus did not really criticize those who gave out of, out of their, their surplus. He basically just made a statement of fact that she gave out of her poverty and these other people gave out of surplus. And the problem is, is that this text doesn't really support that view of trusting God and giving all you have and all these kind of things. I think what this woman is, is she's a victim. And she's a victim of a religious system that uses its people. And it teaches them basically to give to get. It's a whole system that you give money to God because you want to get something back. And she is that woman in verse 40. She is a woman who's been devoured. She is the widow who's been devoured by the scribes, I believe. She's destitute and all she has left is two cents. And I don't think this has anything to do with Christian giving unless you think Christian giving is giving everything you have and then you go home and die. Or you give everything you have and then you have to go and have somebody else support you. I don't think that's what this does. The principle of giving for Christians is always one of stewardship. It's always one of joy. It's always when you give a heart that's full because God has given you so much. I think this outward action is simply evidence of what this system did to widows and to everyone else that followed that system. This is a system that teaches if you want something from God, you give first. So you give to get. Doesn't this sound like TV preachers? 
prosperity gospel. That's the system. Hey, send me your money. Send your money till it hurts. And God will pour out such a blessing on you. Guys, that's what this is. It's prosperity gospel back over 2,000 years ago. Because this is what the scripture says about giving for a Christian in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must do as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I believe in tithing. And I believe in free will giving. That is over and above the tithe to missionaries and the work of God. But why do I do that? Because I love them. And I want to see his kingdom prosper. And I understand that everything I have has come from him. And so I gladly give because he's given so much to me. I don't give to get. I don't give to, okay, God, you're going to bless me now, right? So I'm going to give double the amount so I get double the blessing. Guys, that is not a truth found here in the New Testament. Now, I believe there is a truth that you can't outgive God. But this text here is basically saying this system absolutely raped and pillaged their people. And this widow is such a victim of that. It teaches about corrupt religion and corrupt false teachers that will say anything to make a buck. And it uses their people. But it says nothing here that she was even a believer. It doesn't say whether or not she truly loved God. It's basically saying she's hoping upon hope she's going to make it. And the system has taught her, well, if you give everything you got, then God's going to give back to you. And there's nothing here about the disciples. Jesus didn't take them to the side and say, okay, you see that? Now let's take our money purse and we're going to go ahead and put it in that coffer. He doesn't do that. Why? He just called it a robber's den. He wouldn't teach that. So you can identify false religion by its victims and she's one of the victims. But also you can identify a false religion by its destructions because God will not allow it to continue. It may continue for a while, but trust me, If they're using the name of God, particularly if they're using the name of Christ, judgment will come. Look at verses 1 and 2. And he was going out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. God had already judged it. This system was using its people. It was using the name of God. It was profaning his name. And we know that in 70 AD, as we've talked about before, that Rome came in and it sacked Jerusalem. Matter of fact, it totally tore down the temple. There was no more temple, no more Pharisees, no more Sadducees, no more scribes. All the records were destroyed. There's no more lineage. There's no more sacrificial system that died in 70 AD. And we know officially it died when Jesus was hung on the cross and the veil was torn in two. And he started a new covenant in his blood. That's really when it ended. But guys, it will be destroyed because God will judge those that will use his name in vain and will do things that aren't right. God will judge false religions. Now we've seen this in our day, haven't we, so many times, the scandals, if you will. It's sickening to me. You've got the Jimmy Swagger, your Ted Haggard, your Jim Baker, and most recently, guy, we had the Crystal Cathedral deal, right? With the money stuff and you know, the the bankruptcy and all that. But the same thing that overtook the Jews back in that day are the same thing that overtook these men and their ministries. It was a love for money. It was a love for stuff. It It was a love, it was pride that drove it. And you can recognize a false religion system by the leaders are given over to pride. They love riches. They're given over to traditions more than the teaching of the Bible. They're given over to ceremony. 
And so if you're thinking about, what do I, if I'm looking for a good, healthy church pastor, Rob, what do I look for? I want to leave this with you as, as maybe a way to end this message. Because I'll be straight with you. I've recently talked to a number of people that have, been, that have had problems in other churches recently that actually ended up in our church. And they're hurt. And they're wounded. So I want to give you a word. First of all, do they exalt Christ, not men? Is he primary? Is he the focus of the teaching every week? Is it a love for him that you see in his people and a love for one another? Do they exalt Christ? Two, do they teach the word of God, not the traditions of men? Is the word of God primary? Do they stay in the text? Do they break it apart? Do you understand the context of the passage? Do they try to bring it to you straight? It's not just a bunch of topical message or whatever. Just straight Bible. Do they focus on worshiping God in truth, not ceremony? Worshiping God in truth, not ceremony. And is the main focus the gospel of Jesus Christ? They're outward focused. It's not about the building. It's not about a person or a personality. Does the leadership encourage humble service and wise stewardship? Not the prideful building up of any person or position. So if you see a church and it does not have this, exalting Jesus, teaching the word of God, worshiping in truth and humble service, avoid it. It is not of God. I think that's what this word is. That we're to be wise stewards with what God has given us and we're to exalt Christ at all times. Because you identify false religions by its victims and God will not be mocked. He will judge it. And you identify Jesus as the real Christ through ancestry and scripture. And lastly, you identify false teachers by their pride and their thievery. Let's pray. Well, Father, this was a serious word again. But Lord, we know that you're true. And Lord, we just want to honor you with our lives. And Father, whenever we have a a serious word, Lord, let us take it to heart. Let us be mindful and prayerful. Let us minister to those in need, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me? As I've been praying this week about how to share with you this morning after this message, what do you say to that? You know where my heart is? I think there are maybe even people in this church that have been hurt, if you will, through a religious church or system that you're kind of gun shy. It's like you're not sure what to do. You've been hurt, if you will, by religious leaders or whatever, and, and you're no longer on fire for Christ going forward, but you're kind of stuck. I just want you to be healed, guys. God has many, many churches that are healthy. And I hope you find that this is one of them, that we'll just love you back. That we love the Lord first and we want his word to be primary. And we want to love on his people. And so if that's you this morning, that you've been wounded, or somebody's done something to you in some other church and you found that you just can't seem to move forward anymore, I want to help just in prayer right now. Pray that God would help you and minister to you. And that's going to be my prayer this morning. So let's just bow our heads together and we'll pray that God would bring healing. Father, we understand that even here in Orange County that there are some, Lord, that are like these false teachers. They've, they've used their position and their power for personal gain and pride. 
And maybe even some of us in this room have been through that situation and it's hindered us, Lord. It's hurt us and we're, we're kind of gun shy. So Lord, I just ask that you would help anyone here that's struggling in this area. That you would build them up, Lord. That you would heal them. That you would help them to have Jesus as their focus. And that they would serve you, Lord, with all their heart, with all their soul, their mind, and all their strength. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.